there was an article published last year, and in this article, they did a study over the last 50 years to find out what topic has been in our music the most. Now, if you had to guess what subject matter has been in our music the most, what would you say in the last 50 years? I think I heard the right answer. But some of y'all was thinking maybe it's worship music because we love Jesus. <laughs> nah, it ain't worship music. What did y'all say? What do y'all think it is? Love. love. Man, y'all so smart. Man. First service got to step their game up. <laughs> love. Exactly. Guarantee if y'all leave the church right now, turn on your radio within 10 to 15 minutes, you will either hear a love song or a breakup song. And a breakup song, if y'all don't know, it's just a love song that went bad. <laughs> this is the reality. Our culture always is talking about love. It is a reality. We understand that love is a real thing. It's everywhere. Now, some of y'all are thinking, all right, Jeff, love songs, what that got to do with John chapter 14? Thank you for asking. In John chapter 14, in our text today, Jesus is going to show his disciples God's picture of love. In other words, Jesus is going to say, this is what love is, and this is what it looks like as he shows his disciples. So now as we're continuing in the gospel of John, we're still in the section of Jesus' upper room discourse. The disciples are experiencing their final moments with Jesus before he goes to be crucified. Jesus is seeking to teach and prepare his disciples for a time that is going to shake the world and especially their lives. Jesus is also continuing to comfort his disciples, as he said in verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me. So how does Jesus comfort his disciples in this text? He does it by giving them God's portrait of love. Jesus is showing his disciples a realistic picture of what love looks like and does so that their hearts will be comforted. Therefore, in order for our text today, we'll look at love from three different aspects. We'll see the foundation of love first. We'll also see the response to love. And then third and finally, we will see the agent of love. With that, let's dig in. First point, the foundation of love. Let's jump to chapter uh, 14, verse 15. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. So Jesus starts by showing that the love that he gives his disciples does not come out of thin air. In other words, it's not this love that is to and from or basically has no purpose. That's not the love that Jesus is talking about. Before we can even understand the love of God for his people, we must first see that the love that we receive is the very love shared between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If you just glance quickly at this chapter, it's easy to see the relational aspects of the Trinity. Things are said like, I will ask the Father. The Father will give you the Spirit as a helper because of me. I am in my Father. The Holy Spirit who the Father sends in my name. The Father has commanded me. The world will know that I love the Father. This is triune love. One God 
and three persons, all persons equally God coexisting in a relationship with love and trust at its core. This is the foundation of love. Love has a definition, and in order to know what love means, you must first look at the love of God. This is why there's so much debate in our culture about what love is and what it isn't. This is why you can be in a relationship with someone or even have a friendship with someone and have two completely different understandings about what love is. You'll say, honey, I love you, or bro or sis, I love you, and that person responds, you don't love me. If you loved me, you would fill in the blank. What's the problem? The problem is that we all know that love is real, but we've been so separated from the foundation of love that we don't know how to truly define it or to display it. I remember when I was about to get married to my wife, I was a godly young man and I had been reading the scriptures and I had been reading Ephesians 5, love your wife like Christ loved the church, give yourself up for her. I'm reading all these books on marriage and listening to all these sermons. I'm about to kill it in marriage. <laughs> I'm about to kill it. Like, I'm ready. I'm telling myself, like, Jeff, you got this. You've been studying. You're about to kill it. And then I got married. <laughs> and I found out, like, man, I don't understand how to love as much as I thought I did. And here's the thing. I'm a Christian. I wanted to love my wife. But the reality is, as much as we want to love, it is difficult. We must know what love truly is and what it looks like practically. Thank God that he shows us a picture of what love looks like, and he does it by displaying the love in the Trinity. Verse 16 says, we see the Son asking the Father to give us the Spirit, and what does the Father do? Since the Father loves the Son, he does what the Son asks. That's love. Also in verse 16, we'll see this more in the chapter, the Holy Spirit will empower and protect believers because Jesus loves them. In other words, the Spirit joyfully does the will of the Son because He loves and trusts His will. That's love. Verse 21 says, And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. The Father loves those who love His Son. If you're a parent, you know exactly what this is. It's when you had a nanny or babysitter and you've seen them love and just sacrifice for your children. How do you naturally feel about that person? You love them because they love who you love. This is the father. He loves those who loves his son. Why? Because that's love. Lastly, in verse 31, Jesus says, I do as the father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the father. Why? Because Jesus shows that true love will joyfully produce action for those whom they love. As a Christian who's a beneficiary of this love, we should naturally translate this love to others. If we've been loved, it should be easy to love others. So, beloved, the foundation for love comes from the foundation of God. The love we receive starts in the Godhead. In theological terms, this is called the covenant of redemption. It's the father choosing a people that he will save and the son being the person that will die to save that people and the spirit will resurrect and empower everyone that the son saved. This is called the covenant of redemption. We do not receive the blessings of God apart from the love of God. The benefits of verse 18 and 19 do not exist apart from the love in the Trinity. And what benefits do we receive? We'll look at verse 18 and 19. 
Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to leave them, but he won't leave them as orphans because he will return. In the Greek world, an orphan was a child who lost either one or both of their parents, or an orphan was a disciple who lost their master. And Jesus is saying, I'm not going to leave you in that way. I'm going to die soon, but it is not as it appears. You won't be alone because I will return to you. Now, Jesus isn't talking about the second coming in this text. He's actually talking about when he's going to resurrect and appear to his disciples alive. This is why he says, because I live, you will also live. He's saying that I'm going to die, but best believe I will not stay dead. I'm going to resurrect. And when I do, it will change everything. When you see me resurrected, you will know for sure that you will be resurrected as well. And therefore, when this happens, you can believe everything that I say. This is how Jesus says it in verse 20. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Jesus wants his disciples to know that the Father will not fail the Son, and the Son will not fail the Father, and the Spirit will not fail the Father and the Son. And this is meant to bring the disciples comfort. Now, why should that comfort them? Well, if you're a person that struggles believing that God loves you based off of what you've done or didn't do, this should bring you comfort. If you're that person that's like, man, I haven't shared the gospel as much as I should have in the last week, or I failed and I've done this in the last week, how can God love me? Beloved, God does not love you based off of what you do. God loves you based off of what his son did. And this should bring you comfort. The father's love for you is based in his son. And if you're in his son, then God loves you because Christ died for you. The love shared between the Trinity will be on display before the disciples' eyes. And the resurrection of Christ is proof that God's love does not fail. This love is meant to comfort the disciples. And when they see it, it necessitates the proper response. Which brings us to our second point, the response to love. The response to love. Let's pick back up in verse 21. Jesus says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. So up until this point in John's gospel, Jesus has declared and showed his love for the disciples. And he's also commanded that his disciples love one another. But this is the first time in John's gospel that he speaks of the disciples' love for Jesus. According to Jesus, the proper response to the love of God is that you love God. You say that one more time. The proper response to the love of God is that you will love God. And what does this love look like? In verse 21 and 15, Jesus tells us, it is that you know 
and keep the commandments of Jesus. Now, there's typically two ditches that Christians fall into when it comes to understanding obedience and the gospel. First ditch, legalism. What is legalism? Legalism can show itself by someone thinking that his or her's right standing before God is based off of how well they keep his commandments. Or a more common way that this looks like in our circles, someone may believe that they're initially saved by grace alone through faith, but they got to do these things in order for God to stay pleased with them. Let me give you a picture of this. It's that person that's like, like I was saying earlier, I can't pray right now because I haven't did enough. I haven't done enough. I haven't shared the gospel enough. I sinned last week. Now I got to go and give my money to the poor, or I got to be nice to people, super nice, because if I do these things, then God will be pleased with me. I got to do some type of penance in order for God to somehow love me again because I'm working for God's love, not God's love already in Christ. This is legalism. I think the reason so many Christians struggle with legalism is actually because of the households we grew up in or the systems that we've been in school and other things of this sort. We've thought that our good deeds and our bad deeds gain whatever righteousness or affections that we're going to get. Maybe you grew up in a household and your parents were constantly telling you, hey, if you do this or if you don't do that, then I'll treat you better or you'll get this. And what happens? You fail. You mess up. You don't keep to these standards. And then you start feeling cold shoulders. This is not the gospel. This is not the way we understand obedience and the love of Christ. God is the one who saves us, and God is the one who keeps us. In John 6, Jesus says, this is the will of my Father that I should lose none of all that he's given me, but raise them up on the last day. What is Jesus talking about? Jesus said, I'm the one that saves you, but I'm also the one that keeps you. It has nothing to do with you. I'm the one that's doing the work. Therefore, I will not fail. So first ditch, legalism. What's the second ditch that we fall into? Antinomianism. What is antinomianism? It is a belief or practice that Christians will say that since we're saved by grace, I don't have to obey commandments. I mean, I've been saved by grace. If you tell me I need to obey these rules, aren't you adding works to the gospel? You can live your lives the way that you want, do what you want to do, and make God fit with your lifestyle. Because if somebody tells you that you're called to obey, they've added to the works of Christ. Hence the name anti-law. It's against the law. But Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Let me tell you what this looks like. It's that person that does everything that they want and they make God fit with their agenda. I can go out here. I can live my life. I can go and have sex and party on the weekend, get drunk, do all these things, and God is fine with it. Or it's that person that will do everything that they can, lie, cheat, steal to build up their wealth, but it's okay because God saved me. Santonomianism. This is not the gospel. The Apostle Paul says it like this in Romans 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? The gospel does not allow us to not obey rules. The gospel frees us to obey his rules. When Jesus says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. He's not talking about a person who does things in order to prove that they love God. Jesus is saying that those who have have truly believed in his name, their lives will naturally produce obedience to his commands. 
They will love God with all their mind, body, and soul and love their neighbor as themselves because Jesus says it. They will love other Christians, love one another the way that Christ loved them because Jesus says it. They will live out the laws of God, not because they're trying to be saved. It's because they're saved that they live in light of this. The gospel produces a person that wants to joyfully follow God. It's not the other way around. You don't do good things and obey God that God would love you. It's because that God loves you that you naturally would do these things in obedience. This is the gospel. Those who understand the depths of their sin and know the extent that Christ went to rescue them from the wrath of God that they deserved will instinctively and joyfully serve the God that rescued them. I remember when I was about three or four years old, I was a very curious kid. I loved just going to different places and seeing different things. Anything that was around me, I was very curious. So this would lead me to wander off a lot of times. I remember I was at a family reunion on my dad's family, and we're at the family reunion, and I wander off. And my cousins, they had this pool in front of their house, and I'm like, man, a pool, that looks cool. Let me go over here. And I go to the pool. I'm walking around the pool, the base of the pool, looking at, look at this water. This looks so cool. Now, people who know me as a kid, I had a very big head. And my head was big, and it, didn't, it wasn't proportioned well with my body. So any way that my head was, my body would follow. So you can, you can imagine as I look over into the pool, head out, I go tumbling in the water. Go right to the water. Go right to the bottom of the water. And I remember as a kid, I can still remember it vividly to this day, I'm at the bottom of this pool, and I just see this figure jump into the water. This figure jumps in. It's my cousin Rochelle. She comes in with her clothes in, grabs me out of the water, pulls me out, and she saves me. Now, I don't know why, but my cousin Rochelle has always been my favorite cousin. (laughs) You know, I love the rest of my family. I got some other cousins in here. I love you too. But it was just something about Rochelle. I didn't know why I've always loved her so much. Rochelle can ask me for anything. And I'm like, you need it because you got it. What happened? When someone goes to the depths to save your life and you know that you will be dead had it not been for them, it will do something to your soul. If this is the way I can feel about a cousin, how much more for the sinless son of God that died and shed his blood that you may live? The response to the love of Christ is a loving, joyful obedience. These are the people who Christ has manifested himself to. These are the people that the Father loves, and evidence of this is that their lives produce obedience. But Judas, not as scary in the text, he's confused. He's ignoring everything that Jesus is talking about. His mind is completely somewhere else. He asks, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not the world? Now, Judas, mind you, he's a Jew at the time, so he's thinking about this kingdom coming to change everything. He's reading the Old Testament about this king, this kingdom that comes and destroys every other kingdom, and they come and rescue the Jews out of their oppression, and that's what he's asking about. And Jesus is like, I will return one day, but let me redirect that question. I will return to bring the fullness of the kingdom, but until I come to bring this kingdom, I will rule in the hearts of my people, and my presence will be with them until I return in the end. And this is what obedience is in our life. Jesus is talking to his disciples in the first century, but if you're a Christian in here today, Jesus is talking to you. 
the presence of the triune God will be with you and in you. And if this is the case, Jesus can tell you, let your hearts not be troubled. Believe in me. If you look at your life and you've trusted in Christ and it's produced in your lifestyle, Jesus is telling you, be comforted. Believe in me. But there's a problem. Disciples, they hear this, yet one question remains from them. How? How? How will God do this? Which brings us to our third and final point. The agent of love. Let's pick back up in verse 25. These things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So how? How? How will these scared men trust the words of Jesus when the world will be against them because of Jesus' name? How? How will they be comforted and obey Jesus' commandments when the world is against them and they feel powerless? How? Well, if they believe the words of Jesus and they trust that his love will never fail, they can be sure that he will give them what they need. And as we just read in the text, what Jesus gives them is actually not a what, but a who. It's the Holy Spirit of God. Jesus being the provider that he is, he promises that he won't leave them as orphans and instead will send them the Holy Spirit in his name. Now, what would this look like? Not only will the Spirit be a helper and a comforter, but as verse 26 says, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, I know Christians, good, well-meaning Christians, when we read something in the Bible, we automatically think God is talking to us, but this is just not the case. This text is actually specifically talking to the 12 disciples. What is Jesus saying? One of the things that the Holy Spirit done for the 12 disciples was bring to remembrance every word of Jesus so that the disciples could record them to the generations that come. This is how we have the gospel. This is why we have the four Gospels. The reason we know the words of Jesus and not because some man just gave them. It was the Holy Spirit empowering the disciples to bring to remembrance every word of Jesus. That's how we have the Gospels. Now, if you like me, you're like, okay, praise God, we got the Bible. Jeff, but what does the Spirit do for us? What does that look like for us? Well, the next verse tells us, look at verse 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. The love of God in Christ will be given to every believer by way of the Spirit. Christ will show his disciples just how much he cares for them by providing with them a peace in the fallen world. For Christians who's going to go through many trials and tribulations, persecutions and temptations, Christ is ensuring his disciples that he will give them the spirit of God to empower them just like it empowered him through his ministry. Therefore, Christians, we will not be lacking in anything that we need in this life. And this is how Christians have accessed this supernatural peace even in the face of death. Think about the New Testament. Look at Acts. How do you get a Peter who Denied Jesus at one point in time, then he's willing to be killed. If you remember at the end of John, the disciples were scared after Jesus left. 
They were scared when the people came to arrest and crucify him. And Peter was the brave one. He said, you know, I'm going to stay with Jesus. And then Peter got in the courtyard, and they was like, do you know Jesus? And he said, no. He was scared. He was fearful. But what happened? How do you go from being this fearful person in order to be in this person that's brave with peace even in the face of death? Look at Stephen, Acts chapter 6 and 7. Stephen, bold in his faith, telling the Jews that this same Jesus that you crucified is the same Savior that God sent to save the world. And they're angry and they scoff at him and they start stoning him and they put him to death. And even while he's being put to death, Stephen says, Lord, forgive them for they don't even know what they're doing. How do you have this peace? How do these disciples have these peace? Two things had to happen. One, Jesus had to resurrect as he said he would. Secondly, the Spirit had to come and give them peace as Jesus promised. And this is how Peter, the one who denies Jesus, from what we know in history, goes to end up being burned or killed at a, at a stake, and he does not deny the name of Jesus. The only way that they could do this is by receiving the supernatural peace that comes from the Spirit of God. And that same peace that Jesus had when he went to the cross, he says, I give to you. To all my disciples, I give to them, even in the face of adversity. Now, you're like, okay, that happened then. But fast forward 2,000 years, Jesus is still given that same peace by the power of the Spirit. It's the same thing that led 20 Coptic Christians a couple years ago when Muslims captured them and threatened to kill them and behead them for their faith. They still endured to the end, and they did not deny the name of Jesus. That's that supernatural peace. It's the same peace that would take a teenage Tyler Trent with cancer to end up impacting a whole nation with the gospel because his hope is in the life to come and not this life. It's that same peace where Christians that are struggling with depression and anxiety daily wake up struggling, but then they get on their knees and they put their face to the ground and they pray, God, help me, be with me. And the Holy Spirit gives them an overwhelming peace that surpasses all understanding. This is what we have by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the agent by which the love of God is manifested into our hearts, and that evidence is peace. Jesus is telling his disciples these things, but they still don't get it. They're missing it. They're scared of him leaving. And in verse 28 through 30, he tells them that it's to your benefit that I go. Because if I don't go, then how am I going to send you the Spirit? We have a will. We have a plan. And if I don't go, you don't receive the Spirit. He wants them to focus on the will of God and not the will of man. And when they receive the Spirit, it's going to all make sense. They're going to believe every word of Jesus, and this is what changes when they're willing to die for the sake of Christ's mission. This is what happens. Let me bring this all together. Jesus first shows us the foundation of love in the Trinity. And secondly, he tells his disciples what it looks like to respond to this love. And then finally... Jesus tells his disciples that his love for them will come in the person of the Holy Spirit to bring them peace throughout any tribulation and trial that they face. So with that, let me leave you with a couple applications. 
If you're a non-believer here, if you've never trusted in Christ as your savior, your family member has invited you multiple times, and you're like, okay, well, I'm gonna come to church for you. If that's the case, I thank God that you're here. I was talking earlier about this love of God. I guarantee if you're a person living, you know that love is real, but it's failed you so many times. How many relationships have you been in? How many things has happened when people said they love you, but they fail you? My plea to you is come to the love of God that never fails. And guess what? That same Holy Spirit that comforts and empowers believers is the same Holy Spirit that will take your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. In other words, the reason we believe in God is because the Spirit quickened us to believe in Him. If He's pulling at your heart and He's tugging on you and you say, man, this is making sense and I want this, guess what? That ain't just you. That's the Holy Spirit already working in your life. Come to Him. Come to Christ. That love does not fail and it never ends. And if you're a Christian and you've given your life to Christ, but you've been struggling with this walk of obedience, you're like, man, I know I love God. I know I want to live for him, but I'm struggling with this obedience. I can probably guarantee you that there's one thing that makes that happen. One of the main things that causes Christians, genuine Christians who love God, to struggle with obedience is because they live in isolation. If you're a Christian and your faith only means that you come to church on Sunday and that's it, you are not thriving. You're not going to flourish as a believer if you're isolated. I remember when I first got saved, for the first two years, I didn't have a church home. I was getting fed by the Word of God on YouTube, by myself, listening to sermons. I was learning a lot, and I knew I loved God, but my life didn't add up. Why, why did it happen? I was in isolation. Hebrew says the reason, the way that God protects and grows believers is by way of community. Join a small group. If you go to this church, join a small group. Grabs community. Meet some people after church. I know all of us look weird, but when you get outside, be like, hey, I'm weird, you weird too. Can I get your number? <laughs> we not going to bite. I will, but the, the rest of y'all might. Meet somebody, be in community, and this is the way that you will flourish and grow. I've seen it in my own life. There was things that I struggled with for the first two years. As soon as I got plugged in to my church and had community around me, it was crazy to see my faith just grow in obedience. Join community. And then thirdly, if you're a Christian and you've been walking with the Lord faithfully for years and you're like, Jeff, I'm with you, brother. Let's keep fighting in obedience and let's keep loving in community. I'm with you. Let me also encourage you why it is that you have received the love of God. Let me encourage you and remind you from God's word. Turn over with me to John chapter 20. Listen to Jesus' words after he resurrects from the dead and appears to his disciples. Verse 19. Jesus came and stood among the disciples and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As for the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. 
The reason you have received the love of God is not for yourself. God has not given you his love to just keep it to yourself. The reason we have received the love of God is that we would take that love of God and spread it across the nations. This is why people go overseas. That love needs to be taken to places where they've never heard of the love of God. But maybe that's not you. You're like, okay, well, I don't go overseas. What am I going to do? God has given you his love so you can take that love and share it where you're at right now. It's Thanksgiving this this next upcoming week. Take that love of Christ and take it to your family members. Those cousins and that aunt who's weird and always asks you strange questions, give her the love of Christ. This is what Christ gave you this love for. It's not to be isolated, but it's meant to go out that other people will say, man, I see something about the way that you love, and I see something about the way that you live. I want that. And this is what Jesus commissions us. This is why he gives us the love of God that we would share it and others would inquire and say, how can I drink of this love as well? So with that, I want to encourage you. God's love does not fail. And God's love that gives you this peace, it will be noticed and it is meant to go to everyone who will come to him. Let's pray. Lord God, it's so easy for us to take your word, to listen, and to hear it, and think, how does this apply to this next person? God, but I ask that this word does not come and land on hearts, that people will look and say, well, this person needs to hear this, God, but they would hear your word and say, God, what is it that you're saying to me? What are you communicating to me? There's things in my life that I got to give up, and I know, God, that your love is worth it because I've seen where I came from, and, God, I know where I'm going. God, give me that strength by the power of your spirit. God, I pray for your people that you would care for them this week. As we go into the holidays, God, people who's lost loved ones, there's going to be dinner tables where someone who was integral to their family is no longer there, God, I ask for that peace. Bless your people, comfort them, let them trust you, and let them focus on what's to come. By the power of the Holy Spirit, I pray, God, that you would bless your people. Be near to us as you promised, and we know that you're faithful. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.